How are you today? I'm all right. Yeah, Yeah. I'm okay. Sounds like you've been having a good time. It's yeah, we have. (laughs) (laughs) But so, okay, you were watching the hearings. Yeah, it's been driving me crazy. I'm trying not to. I'm trying to do work. (laughs) Okay, well, first, but yeah, yeah. All right, we'll we'll get there in a minute. Well, we don't have to. <laughs> oh, please, because I'm not watching them. So, but first, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, I'm sure you could do yourself a lot more justice than I can. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm uh, I, you know, I'm not sure. I probably will do myself far less justice. I would rather you do it. Um, okay, I'm a wine fine. writer. Okay, you're okay. You're a wine writer. <laughs> that all being the case, I'm I'm going to do you some justice here. Okay. Uh, so Alice Byring was the first person to write about natural wine in the United States, and uh, I believe, uh, yeah, I think that's true. And, yeah, and not only wrote about about natural wine, but also called BS to uh, a lot of what was going on in the conventional wine scene. She wrote a book called uh, what was it? Uh, I can, I can, those I can Robert provide Parker. you with you know, how, the wait. battle for wine and love or how I save the world well, from, from Parkerization. Okay. So, and you have written many books uh, yes. and I know that you get mostly wine books uh, you wrote a book on Georgian wine and to that yes. effect, I figured it'd be fun if we were to drink some wine from Georgia as we talk. So yep. you can see, you can see what I am drinking here. This is Cheetos and or Cheeto and Grino uh, are who? This is a new it's one to me. Cheat oh, here. Cheat uh, uh Cheetos. Oh, Cheetos Gavino. Gavino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheetos, Cheetos yeah. wine, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, what, well, what are you drinking? Well, I haven't opened it up yet, but it is a 2015 Pheasants Tears Kirchvi. Um, and you know, like a much beloved but somewhat esoteric grape. And I was, uh. Yeah, it was, I have several Georgian wines here and uh, curious how this 2015 is doing, you know, like, uh, so that's what I will be drinking. It's a little okay. bit early for me to drink, but I have something here to spit. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, okay. I'm three hours behind you and I'm drinking. Yeah. And you're drinking. But, I know, but, but I have way more stamina. <laughs> that, that's not true. But I, I, this is once in a while, the name of the show is Queerly Drinking and Juan is here in the studio with me. So it's not like I have, I'm drinking an entire bottle to myself. No, that's great. So, okay. (laughs) But so yeah, let's, let's talk about, God, there's so much to to discuss. So first of all, uh, the hearings, what, what's being, I mean, I just, I, I, I really can't because it's, I have been watching them on the fly as you, I'm about to launch into a bunch of boring shit. Wait, is this? Oh, wait, that's that is, a word you can't say. Sorry. Okay, I didn't know yeah. whether, whether I'll, word, I'll put okay. others in the chat, but yes. Okay, right. Um, I a bunch of, you know, I've been dealing with mother care, as you know. So I, and that's been lunacy. So uh, I returned home this morning after a whole day of yesterday and this morning and whatever. And so when I can. Unfortunately, she has a television. I don't, but of course, I've got Twitter and all those things I can watch live. And, and you know, it's just uh, watching the other side decide. Aha, we're going to mm-hmm. build a case on supporting pedophilia again. Right. <laughs> it's like what? It's just to watch them do their thing. Is just. And I think I've got a corked bottle. No, it's fine. Um, 
it, it's just, you know, raising my blood pressure and I, I've got to work, I've got to work, but then I catching, you know, bits and pieces. Uh, she's, a, a, I keep on thinking when I'm watching this, I keep on thinking about Kavanaugh, I like mm. beer because I like beer and basically how easy they were on him for stuff that I mean, <laughs> it was just for a judge who um, clearly is, she's so even tempered. I just don't know how she hold it together and she does. And that is so impressive under their hammering and frankly, evilness. Is that yeah. a word? But, that, um, that, that's a word you're allowed to say on radio. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and then I think here I've been writing about wine for, you know, in the way I have been for over 20 years and maybe I should have written about politics, but I think it gets me too upset. But so did wine. Wine got me too upset too. I used to think it was, um, I thank you for the little chat that you sent me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't say that. Those are the five. Okay. Five. All right. Are there only five? Yeah. I, I think there are two, uh, two others, but, but, but the, okay, anything that, okay, exactly. Anything <laughs> that you think you probably shouldn't say, okay, you probably I shouldn't we say. Were, okay. Right. okay, I'm yeah. so sorry. Yeah, right. that's okay. I, I did it on somebody else's show accidentally once. It's easy. Yeah. It's easy to do. I, um, right. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I uh, used to think that wine was my politics, um, taking on uh the evil big machine and wine in 2000 and of course agriculture and uh, that is worthy since everything comes back to it to the land um and that was an important battle to fight but you know, right now you just, i'm overwhelmed yeah. <laughs> with the it's, world uh, i think a, a lot of us are okay, if you don't mind just telling the listeners who might not be as familiar with with your work as i'm sure many are what was that battle that you were fighting 20 years ago and not just 20 years ago, I know it's been a continuous battle yeah. to some degree. Right. So um, I was uh, I was just a normal wine writer, the kind of normal wine writer that wrote about a region that she was excited about or a grape or a bottle or a producer and just, you know, helping people drink well. Um, and then around the late 90s, I discovered that all of my favorite wines were disappearing all of my regions, it was almost like there was a, sort for, a form of genocide happening in the vineyard and regions. And they were all being you know, replaced by these things that I really didn't want to drink. And they were all bombastic and huge and oaky and, and they all tasted the same. Uh, and I finally got frustrated. Well, actually what happened, the actual thing that got me down the five-year path when I finally wrote that book, um, somebody called me up, a publicist who could never pitch me any story that I would write. And he said, hey, there's a guy out here in California who's helping winemakers with the technology to get 100-point scores with Robert Parker. And I'm like, oh, my God, that is the height of cynicism. I can't believe this. And uh, I that sent me down the rabbit hole of finding out what was going on in the wine world and what was wrong with it. And that is when I found it wasn't just that there were many yeasts that you could use to shape and flavor the texture and aroma of your wine. And it wasn't just the prevalent use of new oak, but 
there were all these other, depending on how you count, 72 or hundreds of different additives that goes up yeah. when you talk about all the various kinds of enzymes that you can use that can change and you can control a wine's taste with. And on top of that, there were various machines that can change a wine. And um, I was like, wow, this is just, you know, like when I was growing up as a baby in the wine world in the late seventies and eighties, it was all just, you know, the amount of additives were very low. I mean, the, the worst, uh, the kind of wines that I drank, the, the worst crime would be high amount of sulfite. Mm -hmm. And so that is when we didn't call it natural wine, but I started revealing through my writing um, what technology can do to the wine. And that basically made me a whistleblower in the wine industry. And you know, I got fed up with my, um, my colleagues who complained about the internationalization of the wine scene, but yet would not see anything in print. So I finally formalized my idea for that first book. And, you know, that came out in 2008. Natural wine still wasn't really a term in 2008. Okay. And so you've been, you know, since that time. Since so, that time. Yeah. So much has changed. <laughs> yeah. Since that time. So by the time I wrote the second book, which came out in 2011, which was um, Naked Wine, Letting Grapes Do What They Do Naturally, um, it was natural wine did emerge as a term. It was still in its infancy. There were very, um, when was your wine bar? 2005. The, the, yeah. fir the first one was the 1994. Uh, yeah. We did have natural wines, but of course nobody yeah, we didn't know if you were doing right. traditional wines. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, then I opened Cobb in 2005. Cobb. And we, we might've been the first place yeah, you were. to have natural wine. Because terroir wine. started 2008. Yeah. Um, and so, well, in New York, we started in 2003 mm -hmm. um, with 360. Mm -hmm. And it was infiltrating in a couple of places, but there, were no, there was no place I could go out for anything to drink. And then it was, then 10 Bells started in 2010. Mm -hmm. By the time 2015 came around, it was way more prevalent when was and then it's out of control so natural wine has made its mark you know, people aren't really arguing about natural wine anymore it has come and it's arrived it is here you are drinking it everybody is drinking it uh i can't think of you know i've got this wine club i've got i think people in practically every state of the country we figured out how to ship to uh beforehand it was really just northeast and maybe maybe chicago it was when i got my first person in texas that was like crazy atlanta georgia like how did that happen florida you know so it's it it's everywhere it's, and uh and natural wine is going through there now we've arrived and we're we're the establishment we're still not the establishment but it is basically a, a force to deal with the way grower champagne was the minority and now it's you know the big houses would laugh at them saying they'll never grow between 1.7 percent of the market and i think now they're probably 10 percent. that's not insignificant yeah that's true well i think it, it's interesting because for us of course this is a world that we live in so i think that we think it's like it's everywhere 
And it's definitely, it's in places where you would not you know, expect it to be. It's not like it's just in the big cities on the coast. You find right. natural wine bars in small towns and places that are doing it in a lot of areas. I do think it's a generational thing. And uh, you know, obviously, you know, we're not, we're not kids. Okay. But you know, we're into, and there were, there've always been people and there are people of, you know, amongst our generations that drink natural wine, but it seems like it's, uh, that people who are, you know, younger people tend to just be much more open to it. The, the idea of natural wine, I think both conceptually and also taste-wise. Yeah, but yet there are all those people who are friends who are drinking in the, in 2000 and drinking with us that they're, you know, they're drinking naturally still too. But yeah, I think, of course. Um, yeah. but you know, it, I'm very aware as, as the old guard, um, um, which seems weird, but we are, you know, I'm like, I'm watching all the same mistakes people are making that people made with the conventional wine world. So people are doing um, these, you know, sourcing out these prize bottles, the rare bottles kind of, um, you know, as, as just st status symbol bottles doing the same garbage that that the people who you know followed parker and like i have a 95.1 and like i got you know this rare bottling of opening wow ha ha and opening up and not even appreciating it not understanding what they have there's that there's an acceptance uh people who are wanting to sell their wines and people who i know who i care about are are bottling them in in transparent bottles so people can show off how cloudy they are and their colors because it's marketing and that annoys me too you know it's not good for the wine it's just i used to be natural wine was not about marketing it was just about reality and so i'm having a very hard time watching the marketing come in to the situation that was just really a good old-fashioned and you know anarchistic movement Right. Well, okay. If we're going to go on a little rant, rant about this, I really dig that like, there are a lot of cool wine labels that are around now and not just a natural one. I see that yeah. too, but you know, the old adage was that if, if a wine had a really like good, you know, good looking label that there was probably crap wine. Okay. Yeah. I, that's, that's really changed. Now I think that's cool, but I think I see so many natural wine labels that look the same, the same sort of like- That's why I said it's going through the same yeah, thing, it's right? The same, it's the same sort of like amateur cartoonish stuff. Yeah, that kind change. of looks the same. To, yeah, with, you know, like the regular shaped bottles and all that kind of crap. Uh, I, you know, ironically, I kind of use something like that for just to make a logo for somebody's sister because I was like, this will easily say what it's about, but mm -hmm. I don't feel like- you know, if I can do that and I do something like that using like Luca, then and it just makes me think, okay, like let's have a little bit more originality. And I, I feel that that's not just about the label. I think that there's sort of the idea of like what a nat you know, this idea of a natural wine should taste like this. And part of mm -hmm. the thing with natural wine was, was let the grapes do what they're going to do. Let it be what it's going to be. And now it's like, there's almost like this deliberate effort to make wines that are I know that you would, I guess it would be, you would say unfinished, but yeah, wines that just have like- This raw unfinished are, quality. And this raw unfinished quality, they're mousy. Like to me, I feel like there's a like- what, We the should explain are, what mousy is. 
Okay. Especially since I just finished a 1000 word rant on it for noble rot. Okay. Um, well, you, then you get to do the explaining. Okay. So, so mousiness is a quality that has affected wine through the centuries. And I was trying to find, I just recently found an 1892 reference, but I'm sure there's one centuries before that. It is actually a retronasal smell, which means a smell that you actually only taste. So you take a swig and then you exhale and you get this uh, biscuity or kombucha-like uh, taste at the end. It, uh, in it's, it's most innocent. And then it goes from there into a damn stink bomb going off in your mouth that just won't quit. Uh, and it is a scourge. It was wiped out probably due to a use of sulfur. And now that there's um, all this peer pressure not to use any sulfur at all, and don't get me wrong, I love me a great zero zero bottle that is just beautiful with no sulfur at all added. But that was always the ideal, not necessarily something that could happen in every vintage. And now that there's so much pressure, people who shouldn't be making wine that are zero, zero without the safeguard of maybe a little bit of sulfur at the beginning, and we're talking minute. I mean, like the sulfur police are not gonna come out to get you if you use 15 to 20 ppm at the beginning of fermentation or right after mallow, they're just not. For context, uh, it's legal. I think white wine is um, 260 ppm. And if you use 100 ppm, that's considered high. So 20 is nothing. Anyway, it's, I, I would say one out of every, or I'd say like six out of 10 bottles that I taste are mousy business. Wow. That, that's high. Yeah. That's I mean, high. yeah. To me, it's also, it will often get like this popcorn sort of character yeah. with like, with mousiness. Popcorn, um, basmati rice, all those things are. Yeah. 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 And, but both, well, actually I get popcorn and things when something went wrong in mallow, but partly of what's what's going on with mouse is something is going wrong in mallow. It's connected to lactobacillus bacteria as well as some Brettanomyces. Um, mm. That's a little bit more debatable and when it, that's yeast. So I, I have a personal theory that when there's yeast involvement, that's when it just gets worse and worse, and never goes away. If you're a really good winemaker, it's a little bit of Acetobacter give it time and it will go away. And since we're drinking wine so much younger, they're slapping it into the bottle. Like when it's talk about infanticide, things are going into the bottle that are not pet nuts at the end of December. They're on the market in February, as opposed to it used to be at least 11 months before we used to see them. Yeah. There's no time for the chemistry to resolve if you're working naturally. So people are being sloppy and there's a lot of crappy wine out there. Yeah, I, and that's that's true. The other side to that is that it's, it's just for a lot of winemakers, it's a cash flow issue too. Yeah. So yeah, so that's you know that is kind of the the larger quandary. But I yes. what but I I think that in addition, like you know, there's mousiness and even let's say other things that might be considered flaws, like let's say a lot of retrinomyces, and you know I think mm -hmm. that's just a matter of you have volatile city, some people can handle more than other. But I feel like a lot of, there's also this trend just to like pick grapes really early. And, you know, there was this trend, like you were talking about with Parker, where grapes were just overripe and you'd pick, the, pick these grapes. And by the time you got them in, you end up making these like incredibly high alcohol, just like 
heavy, weighty clunkers. And I mm -hmm. think that basically the pendulum went the other way. And I love sometimes having ones that are just like really bright and like low alcohol and that's great. But sometimes I also feel like I want to, I, I think that wines can be picked too early when the grapes are really not ready. And, yeah. you, you know, and I feel like we have too many wines like that right now. Yeah. I call that underwind. There's just not enough material. And yeah. I find that mostly in hot territories like California, um, mostly new world where people are trying to work around the, the alcohol issue and the heat and the fact that it's so easy to zoom up and there's not enough Carignan around where, you know, you can hold on to its acidity and, uh, as it gets ripe, uh, and yeah, wines lose character and they're shrill. Yeah. You know, people should just, if they want low alcohol, which we all do, just go back to the field blend. California probably shouldn't be mono variety. Well, you know, yes, but hold <laughs> that note. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. Join KSSF on Tuesday, March 29th at the Ripshaw stop as we present the United Kingdom Vanishing Trend for the Bay Area stop of their 2022 North American tour. Sharing the bill are Sonoda and Carmen Ford. The Ripshaw stop is located at 155 South Street in San Francisco. Okay, welcome back. You are listening to KXSF LP San Francisco, Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Drinking. This is Pamela Bush and my guest is Alice Feiring, who is a wine writer, not just any old wine writer. Alice Feiring is the foremost natural wine writer in the United States and has introduced probably more people to natural wine than anyone else in this country. And uh, so now that we're back, we were talking about California. I, so I think what's happening, I think that I, I drink more California wine now than I ever did in my life. Okay. And it's not just because I live here. It's because I think there's better wine being made in the state. And I think that is completely because I, I, I think that's completely because of natural wine. Without a doubt. Yeah. Like there are folks that are, that are people who are making wines that actually, that I find really enjoyable. I mean, yes, there's some, there's some Listen stuff. Listen to the surprise in your voice. I know that's true. No, but 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 there, yeah, there. Of course, there's stuff that I I think to me is just sort of like whatever. It's you know underwined or it's like messed up. But I find that in natural wines from other countries too. It's not not just California, but yeah, I think there there's some really good stuff that that's happening here, and I, I find that really encouraging. Yes. Yeah. yeah in two thousand and eleven, when I actually two thousand and eight, when I landed to do book tour. There was other, unless somebody brought some really old California wine, there was, there were maybe a, two, two wines that I could drink happily. Yeah. And maybe one that I could drink happily. 
it was different in 2011 and certainly it's way different now. It's uh, California has uh, come on board. Mm-hmm. So, so do you think that, I don't know if you ever go back, like how often you drink, you know, conventional wine, right? I, I drink it very, very rarely. Um, if there are people around me who are drinking it, relatives, I might taste something just to like taste what it's like. Yeah, but I, I well, yeah, but I'm not going to sit down and have a glass, right? If I'm at at a, I you know I'd rather just drink booze most of the time. But yeah, that's when booze. That's when you drink, right? Cocktail. That's, exactly. You grab the gin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but a few weeks ago, actually last month, I was out with a few people. Actually, it was when I was in New York, and we ended up having dinner in a restaurant. And it's it had to, it's a restaurant. It's been around a long time. It's a it's a conventional wine list, but they they had some producers that to me were sort of like you know, always thought of them as being some of the better producers of of wine in Burgundy. And so we ordered wine, and and uh, I tasted it, and I just remember thinking to myself, I can barely drink this, but I did. I had like a glass or a glass and a half, but I was thinking, like, wow, this is, it just was was it was actually unpleasant to drink, mm-hmm. and. I mean, do you have that experience when you drink conventional wine? Often. And it is a problem in Burgundy. Yeah. You know, and um, I, I mean, I've had it with, I remember, you know, it's like in Chablis, it's like, I've never had my Dovisa or Ravenau moment, you know, considered mm-hmm. like the gods of, of Chablis. Like, no, give me to more. You know, it's like, I, I just, that's Chablis. I, I can't deal with it. Well, I've had amazing, but I remember really enjoying bottles of wine from Dovey South and from Rabineau. Uh That said, I don't, not sure how I would really, how much I'd want to drink now. them now. And, now. and then it's like, like, I love Antonin de Beru's wines, mm-hmm. you know, and I love Demore's wines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think Burgundy is an, it seems to me like, Burgundy and Bordeaux, the two most classic areas, are the areas that have definitely come the slowest to natural wine in France, which right. leads me to think there's probably, and I do know there's more happening. Oh, in, in Burgundy, there's a lot happening, but what is happening is that there's, well, there are several people working with no to low sulfur. Let's, and well, a few more people working with no sulfur, a few more people working with minimalist sulfur. But so many people have returned to native yeast fermentation and have reconsidered their use of sulfur. Um, and so there, there's way more that one can drink and can drink well. But still, uh, there are a lot of revered wines that are plunked in front of me. And I'm like, cookie cutter, can't do it. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. There's some stuff that I that never really wowed me. I won't I won't say what they are on air, but there's some stuff that people talk about. I've always been like, eh. yeah, yeah, yes. If if I if we both name dropped who those people were, um, well, their importers would come running after us, but we would shock people. Yeah. Um, that said, I will say that the times I've had DRC, mm-hmm. <laughs> they have been fabulous. So. Um, but, but, uh, pretty much any big name, I'm like really going to pass yeah. unless it's got like, unless they're made, um, pre 1990. Okay. So like you were saying, DRC, the La Marche La Grande Rue. So basically there's like this corner in 
uh, Romani Saint Vivant. That's it's like Latash, Richebourg, Le Grand Rue, and what is it? I forgot what the other one is, but uh, and La Marche has like the, like their Le Grand Rue, and that is the um, and it's like that's a monopole the way the DRC has a monopole mm -hmm. over the other. I always loved that wine. It's expensive, mm -hmm. and and frankly, I always like La Marche was was a producer I always really liked as well. And yeah, no, I I I get it. Uh, like I don't know about DRC. I know Lerois has been biodynamic for years. Biodynamic, but she uses quite a bit of sulfur. Yeah. It was, um, but that family is interesting. So you, know, you had Aubert stayed there. Then you had, you know, she went off, started her own thing. And then there was um, uh, Frederick Rock mm -hmm. um, for a prayer rock. Yeah. And so who... He was from that DRC family, and he was the first really to do no sulfur, like major vineyards. I mean, mm -hmm. it cost a lot of money, and that took a lot of guts. I mean, he was a controversial man, but to actually take that kind of terroir and work with no sulfur. The reason that it's been so slow is that, you know, when you're dealing with lands that are just so expensive, I mean, yes, it's not as expensive as Napa. But you're still talking about, you know, like a million euros an hectare. It's hard to take away the safety net and and make wine naturally. So, um, so it's encouraging to see what's happening now. Yeah, I know. So yeah, you were just there, and you know, speaking of Burgundy, I can't think of Burgundy without thinking about Becky Wasserman, who we we lost last yeah. year and uh you know all that she did did you know becky pretty well i knew becky very well actually my new book is dedicated to her oh okay i can't i still can't mention her name without um starting to cry i haven't really dealt with the death yet she she i was we were very close yeah so becky for those of you listening who are not familiar with becky wasserman she was a legendary uh, importer of French wine, especially Burgundy, uh, brought in a lot of, I mean, just there, I think about the different wines that I was introduced to from her portfolio over the years and, and just had a very, a very, very high standard. And, uh, you know, by virtue of the work that she did in Burgundy, that I think opened it up for a lot of other people who are, have then gone on and now to import wines from Burgundy too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the way, and Becky's whole story is part of, it's, her story is so much a part of what she did. It was, um, and coming over to Burgundy with her artist husband then in 1970, um, marriage shortly became a disaster, having two little boys, um, he goes back, thankfully, to the United States. She stays. And meanwhile, while he was still there, like, how do I make a living? How, like so many women in that situation, how do I make a living? And how do I get out of the situation? How can I be financially viable to get out of this horror story? And so that's when she, <laughs> oddly enough, how we became good friends, uh, that she was responsible for selling new oak barrels to California. And she was, that was her first job. And she then, because of relationships of people in Burgundy, started to bring their wines to the United States. Um, 
but she was a mentor. She was a mother to everybody. So even though I would like to claim my special place into her, in her heart, which I'm sure in her very large heart, I did have, there was a room for Alice, but there were a lot of, there were a lot of chambers in that heart of hers for all the people that she mentored. Um, and the last time that I went to Burgundy, I was seriously reconsidering because of the lack of natural wine there. And though it's been wonderful to see the changes since I first going regularly since 2001, what is my relationship with Burgundy without Becky? And that is something that I will be examining over the next two months in writing. Uh, just, I don't know. I don't know, did I write about it so often just because Becky was there? It's a uh, interesting. I used to, I'd say, well, it's so interesting to me because I am interested in how the how the status quo changes, how people um, who are not risk takers start to change, which is what I've seen in Burgundy. How do people with a lot of money to lose risk things? Um, but anyway, Becky was a remarkable human being. Well, thank you for sharing your um, <laughs> no, your experience with our with us. Thank you. Uh, so you you have a new book coming out. I have a new book coming out. You can can I see it? So <laughs> there it is. Well, I can see it, but everyone else no, can't yes. see it. To fall in love, drink this: a wine writer's memoir. Yep, it'll be out. According to this galley, it says August 9th, 1922. <laughs> okay, so can you tell us about it? Is it more wine related? Is it, what is it more of a personal it's, memoir? It's a, it's a, well, it's a memoir. It's a memoir and essays. So there are 15 essays that mostly have absolutely nothing to do with wine, um, but it may have something to do with how I became who I became. Uh, so, and each essay has a sub essay that teases out the wine component. So I, it's a little bit complicated, but as somebody, what, there, is, there is a little book, I forgot when it was published, maybe in the eighties and it was a bestseller and it was on Broadway. And I think it was a film, Love, Loss and What I Wore. So this is almost like Love, Loss and What I Drank. So each one is accompanied by a bottle that is not necessarily the best that you've got to go out and buy. I'm like very against this best thing, but it is the thing that most clearly illustrates that chapter and a wine that moved me. There's nothing in that book that hadn't moved me, just maybe not the absolute best in its category. But so um, I talk about my escape from the clutches of a serial killer. I have I devoted two chapters to him uh, a lot of loss actually uh, you know developing my sense of smell with my very eccentric grandfather and you know my parents disastrous marriage and which resulted in my very first glass of real wine that wasn't you know Manischewitz you know, and it discusses my escaping my background as in being brought up as an Orthodox Jew into this crazy world of wine writing. And I hear that you actually do learn a lot about wine in it. So you'll come away knowing about Burgundy, like about 
Nuit Saint-Georges and Chablis, so very specific about Martin Ray, who is an icon in, in California, long dead, uh, uh, wines from Slovakia, of course, wines from Georgia and stuff like that. So that's the book. So that's the book and it's out in August then. Out in August. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to read it. I hope a lot of people can't wait. To read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank I'm you. Sure, I'm sure. I'm I hope sure. you like it. <laughs> yeah, no, that that sounds interesting. It's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you if you don't mind reading uh just giving a reading a little excerpt, that'd be great. Okay. Uh like what do I do? Do I just go open it up? Um Okay, I'm going to give you an example of one of the, well, I just opened this up. This is, I'll give you a couple of graphs from one of the real ones and, you know, the life okay. ones and one from the wine ones. The crack of metal was like lightning. I whipped my head to see that sure enough, Andrew had gotten into dad's heavily secured file cabinet drumroll, I said. Now I thought we'd find it all out. Now we'd understand what kind of dramatic secret our dad had been harboring. The dead body, the woman, the child, the larceny, something, whatever it was that had ruined his life. For decades, we tried to analyze what went wrong and how someone so promising and charismatic could end up alone broke and having to quit his law practice before being disbarred. Andrew opened one drawer on the other. There's nothing in there, he said, an empty treasure chest, a perfect metaphor for his life. But there is something there, I said, and reached in and tugged at what seemed to be a photograph. So that's, I, you know, I don't want to bore you with this, but then I will. Uh, so you might say, how does that, what does that have to do with wine? So yeah. later in the, um, later in the chapter, I, we're in Tampa and I take my brother out to Burns Steakhouse because there was no way. I mean, when would I ever be at Tampa again? And Burns Steakhouse is um, legendary for its mm -hmm. wine list. Of course, yeah. we're both vegetarians. So it was kind of funny, to, you know, but I so said, we got to go. And he's looking at me, he's a cardiologist. Like, I'm really nuts. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to go to a steakhouse. I don't, you know, a big, and you know, he sees me, there's like this big, mammoth wine list and I end up with a 1982 uh Jabolet uh because it was like 32 bucks which was ridiculous it wasn't that good but so I take that opportunity to talk about Syrah and Northern mm -hmm. Rhone so um I like to think I'm vaccinated against hero worship yet I had to buttress my immunity to visit the notoriously standoffish Northern Rhone winemakers, René Jean Dard and Francois Ribot. And so I talk about iconic winemakers to me and talk about Crows Hermitage. So you'll get 15 essays of very in-depth to a very small part of the wine world. And I think that's a very cool way to learn about wine. Yeah, yeah, it is. I know, like I've I have a friend who kind of who wrote a book that where it's it's similar, which is talks about wine, but it's in a very personal way too. And uh, yeah, I think it makes sense. It's kind of like with music; it it's so personal, and a lot of it just means something to us, you know, based on the memories and where we are at that point in our lives when we were experiencing it. Mm -hmm. Would are there any wines that you can't drink because they, not because of the way they taste, but because of what they evoke? 
that's a very interesting thing. Um, uh, there, I will admit that there are certain wines that I won't drink because I don't like the people that made them or uh, because of some actually deep anus act. Um, but I, but that's it. And that's where I don't was, like, what, what, wait, what was that? Because like of an heinous act. A heinous, a bit, okay, I thought you said they, something else, but yes. No, okay. no, not, yeah, it was an H, not A. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was like, what? <laughs> no, no, you just recommended okay. me from talk like that on the <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you can say anus, but it was okay, all but, but it that, was, that was, like, that was right. a bit troubling, but yeah. okay, it's, it's heinous. No, <laughs> no but I, I don't have, um, but I mean, is that wrong? It's like I say, well, in what I eat, do I, there's nothing that I reject because of texture or mm-hmm. um, it's, and I don't, I don't believe that uh, everybody who I drink has to have my politics or my viewpoint or whatever, but there's some things that people do cross the line on. And, um, but uh, do you, are there some things that evoke terrible Okay, so first of all, I no, I'm with you. I will not drink wines made by certain people or even imported yeah. by certain people. Yeah, uh, imported because, by right yeah. because of certain actions. Uh, uh, yeah, and as I said, there are people I don't like. I just don't think that they're good human beings. Exactly. And and there are too many people who I think are actually really wonderful human beings, right. and I'd rather support them. Exactly. So that I, I'd say, you know, that I'm definitely with you on that. And you know the as far as not drinking wines because they evoke anything, it's it's a little bit like music. Over time, that sort of the, it it's you know that sort of the sharpness gets more blunt, so it doesn't really affect me as much. I was lucky enough not to have any trauma associated with drinking any wine, yeah. and I think that's probably an issue. But my first. The first time when I said, oh, this is what they mean by staggering. I must be drunk. Uh, That was thanks to Southern Comfort. And it took me about 20 years before I could even stand the smell of that. I just had a conversation with somebody about Southern Comfort the other day. It's pretty funny. Um, Oh, actually, Jameson was also like that because um, (laughs) I still can't go near Jameson whiskey. I used to, it used to be my safe thing in dive bars. And then many, many years ago, I went on a press trip and they took us out on a boat at like 10 in the morning. And of course, there's all the trips that anybody could possibly want at 10 in the morning, which I wasn't going near. But when we all started heaving over the side of the boat, I mean, I just couldn't, you know, the smell. Yeah. Blech. Yeah. That, that was the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's talk about something that we do enjoy drinking wines from Georgia, the, yes. the country, the Republic of Georgia, as opposed to the state this, of Georgia. By the way, it's delicious. What I'm drinking has far exceeded my expectations. It's fabulous. And do you mind letting everyone, those, some people might've just tuned in, let everybody know what you are drinking. And for those of you who did to, just tune in, you're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Pamela Bush and uh, the show is Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. My guest is Alice Byring. So Alice, what, what are you drinking now? Okay, so it is from the country of Georgia, from the Kakheti region, which probably yours is from too. It's probably where most of the wine comes from. It's Eastern Georgia. Uh, 
the climate is, you know, like it's close to the desert there. And so there tends to be very strong, strong wines, but this is 12 and a half percent alcohol. The grape is Kichri and it's 2015. So it's got seven years on it. It was, it's deeply amber. It has been made, I think this one had four months of skin contact. So that means that the white wine was made like a red wine, but even more so. So you get the color from the skin. So when you ferment and you let it sit on the skins, the wine gets a deep amber color. And also texture. It was made the 2015, I believe they were not using any sulfur they started using a little sulfur because they got tired of the mouse problem. And, uh, but this is an example of a vintage that you could do a zero sulfur wine and make something very beautiful. I do believe you can make zero, zero wine. That is beautiful. And yep, you and I have, we've yeah, we've talked about like Arashista. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are, I think, I, I think Amber, a lot of Ambeth's wines, I think are, are oh, yeah. very, very good. And, and then there is good. Yeah, and there, there were just a few other folks, and it does make me wonder why more people can't make well zero, the zero acceptance. One. I know it's like well, just talking about Deirdre. You know, Deirdre. There are times when I've been with her in the winery, and you know, something's a little mousy. She won't put it in the bottle. She waits for it to to resolve, and she does. You know, and that is what everybody should do. Um, uh, and so that that's one reason is that, and I think that now there's such an acceptance of mousiness that people know that they can sell it. So why bother? Yeah. Which I mean, if you're somebody like Deirdre, you don't want your name on that. Yeah. But what's interesting is you have producer like Cornelison who wasn't using sulfur. Yeah. But now he is. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I just, I think that uh, to me, that's kind of interesting why he would go and I'm sure he had his reasons, you know. Not only that, and, but yeah. he filters, right. he filters, yeah. he does transgenital filtration. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, as, as Eric Texier would have said, you know, if I would do that, I'd be dead on the spot immediately, you know, yeah. like the police would come after me. It mm. was, um, but it was, and he had been very, very um, vocal about no entrance into his wine. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. I wonder if they're gonna. There's gonna be a trend kind of going back where some of the zero zero people might start using a little sulfur. And, and that Frank didn't just. Yeah. He Frank went another step. Yeah. Than just doing. I mean, he basically is making a nice conventional wine now. Yeah. The wines don't have the life that they used to have. But he, I. Um, you know, they're, they're good wines, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's, let's, um, let's, let's start talking about some stuff though. The wines that we know that we like, we like the Georgians. We like what yes. they're doing. And what made you get like, start digging pretty heavily into Georgia? Cause you wrote a book about, Ge about Georgia, about Georgia wine. Yeah, and, book. yeah. And I know that you're, you, you know, a lot of the people there and that you know, that's not, it's something very near and dear to your heart. So what attracted you to Georgia to begin with? Uh, the wine. I, yeah. uh, my first Georgian wine I had in 2008 on book tour and I was in 
Healdsburg and there was a dinner party for me and Carrie Smith brought a kisi from Vinoterra. Kisi is another beloved grape from right. uh, the Eastern part. Yeah. Uh, we, I was we like, used to carry the Vinoterra wines at Cov, I think in what was like 2006, 2007. Right. We carry them. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, it was a little flabby. It was a little like loose, but it was interesting and I liked it. And then a few years later, Chris Terrell sent me some of Pheasant's Tears. And they were very wonky at that point. It was like, no, this is actually, it was, it was a bad bottle, but it was good, but it was a bad bottle. I could tell what underneath it. Then I got invited to the first international Quevery conference in Tbilisi, actually not in Tbilisi, it was in Kikati, and um, which I thought was the silliest thing that I ever heard in my life. The first, interna first international Quevery conference and Quevery is what they call their buried amphora. And from the, mo from the moment we pushed through the clouds, I remember feeling like something was happening. Right before I landed, I'm like, I'm in love with Georgia and I haven't even landed. And there were five people making wine commercially naturally at that point. And I saw that, and they were beautiful wines. They were just fabulous wines. I mean, not just potentially, okay, they were great. And so many people were making wines like this, but they weren't commercialized, but they yearned to go back to their tradition of making wine, which they couldn't under 70 years of Soviet rule. So, and now that they were coming back to wine and every consulting consultant and their uncle was there trying to run after their money to get their consulting dollars. And I knew the consulting do dollars meant that they were going to introduce them to technology and certain machines and convince them that the world was not ready for their authentic natural product. So I decided I would use whatever muscle I had to try to bring them an audience to show them that they don't have to change, that people were waiting for these wines. And that's what happened. That's what, that's, that's what made me want to write about them. So we need to take a real quick break. We'll be back in just a minute, but I, we're not done talking about Georgia. Okay. Henry at Open Mind believes only the true soul inspires change and makes us move. Find a wide variety from Abbott and Zappa, punk to punk, bebop to hip hop, including new and used LPs, vintage turntables, local art, and your chance to meet Roxy Godoxy. Come to find your groove in record time with Open Mind Music, 5521 College Avenue. So just a few minutes left, you're listening to KXSFLP San Francisco. This is Pamela Bush. The show's Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Drinking. A few minutes left, sadly, with Alice Byron, who is my guest today. Alice is a wine writer, uh, not just a wine writer. Alice is a writer, uh, and a lot of what she's written about is wine, but she also has a memoir coming out in August. So that is, uh, it has wine interwoven, but it's, it's more... Um, about personal stories. So before the break, we were talking a little bit about Georgia and something that I, I realized yesterday. So for you, as we were talking about the beginning of the show that there's so much going on in the world that's, that's quite upsetting. And the way that uh, 
you know, what's going on with the, the Supreme Court nomination, Justice uh, uh, Brown's hearing and the way that she's being treated by, in particular, but not exclusively by the male members of the Republican yeah. Party. Although Marsha Blackburn was pretty awful as well. Uh, beyond that, there we have a war going on in Ukraine that's incredibly scary. And I think that what a lot of people in general have forgotten is that Vladimir Putin went into Georgia and mm -hmm. Russia, 20% of, of the Republic of Georgia is now under Russian control. And uh, what's happening, you know, from what I understanding from the some of the winemakers I know in Georgia is that there, there is, you have, there's a deliberate effort to try to turn the people against each other, sort of what's happening here of just trying to turn like the more progressives and liberals and people who want an open tolerant society against the react or to get the reactionaries in turning against those who've wanted a more progressive society, which has been the case probably for decades and decades, but certainly since the uh, Georgia became its own country after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And uh, so th there's a lot of stuff in, going on in, in Georgia that uh, I, I think would be troubling for a lot of us to, to, to discuss or to hear about. So I, I noticed that in, I guess this was in uh, last summer, the summer of 2021, that there were a lot of Georgian winemakers signed a petition appealing against homophobia and violence and for Western integration. Uh, are, are you aware of this, Alice? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, just a minute. Yeah, I mean, I, being the, the Georgian Orthodox Church can be extremely homophobic and Georgia is an extremely religious country. And there have been some horrible acts of, homophobia that has happened over the past, I forgot what exactly happened last year, but I think, um, but yes, but so yes, they came out with this petition. Yeah. And which yeah, yeah. It's not, which actually is, you know, it's, these things are not open. It's funny because Georgia is promoted as a great place for gay travel. And when I was, you know, that come to Batumi, you know, and all these, you know, gay posters, but it's, um, it's, and so it's such a deeply split country. Um, yes, welcoming, no problem, you know, because people like it's such a deeply religious country. It's like when I was in Fez, being a woman alone, it was a little, you know, like scary. Um, and so it was, uh, it was a good move on their part because these things are not talked about openly in Georgia. So do you think that, that by signing this petition, actually, that actually can uh, need move to the needle about. a little bit? Yeah. yeah, I do. I do. Maybe, you know, it's as if everybody, a petition doesn't do much, I don't think, in the United States. But Georgia is tiny, very close knit. And there is a firm hold that the church has. And I think a lot of those people are very religious who did sign the petition. So I think people listen to their neighbors in Georgia. When in when in 2013, we're talking about a country in 2013, I met this old guy. It was like, I went to this nunnery and they're saying we make our wine. And, but I wanted to find out who it was who makes the wine and met this older guy who would not even shake my hand. 
And she said, I make the wine. Women don't make wine in Georgia. So we're talking, I mean, that was only in 2013. And now, well, doesn't he have to eat his words? <laughs> because mm -hmm. there are a, what a concentration of women winemakers in Georgia. Oh, tons. There are tons. It yeah. may have the, you know, as far as per capita, it, it's quite a footprint. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, Things I, I, can change in Georgia. So do you know much about if there's any, yeah, there, there are people who make wine everywhere, you know, pretty much. As, but do you know of anyone who's making natural wine in Ukraine or was before the war? Yeah, there is um, somebody. Oh, God, I should dig out his email. Um, somebody sent me a picture of his home natural vineyard. It was weird. It was like in raised beds and it was, but I think that there is somebody and I, or was somebody, I'm sure those lines are gone. You know, gone is near, in, the Blake, near the Black Sea. I can't remember actually where, but there were a few. So they were very in international one. Actually, I was supposed to land February 28th um, to go to a natural wine fair. And so where there's natural wine fairs and where there's vines, you know that there's going to be natural wine made. Yeah. Well, uh, it's very sadly, I think that is the least of their worries right now. Yes, that is the least of the worries. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's see, we just have like another minute or so left. Okay, Alice, once again, can you let everyone know the name of your book and when it will be released? Okay. To Fall in Love, Drink This will be released in August 2022. Scribner is publishing it. Um, meanwhile, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Hey, how about that for like a segue into a pitch? Yeah, do it. Okay, please. <laughs> okay, continue. the firing line, the firing line, considering moving over to Substack, but right now it's thefiringline.com. Okay, great. Right. Well, this has been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. And Thank you, uh, it's been great. And I'm sure we'll talk soon. We will. Okay. Okay, all right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.